the upset. Many cultures have their own David and Goliath stories, and they even call them David and Goliath stories on the TV news and on sports broadcasts. Just in the Olympics, we had Jesse Owens in the 1932 Olympics humiliating the Nazis. We had the U.S. hockey team in 1980 defeating the Russians. We had uh, Eddie the Eagle, the almost blind ski jumper from Great Britain a few years back. The Jamaican bobsled team, remember them? And, uh, and this year we had South Africa's double amputee track star. And I could talk about movies, but I won't even start. The best, the best David and Goliath story, however, is the David and Goliath story. So, will you join me at Hebrews 11? Hebrews chapter 11 in the Bible. It's page 852 in the Bibles that are in our pews. There's an insert in the bulletin you can take some notes on as we go. And seven Sundays this summer, our messages came from this awesome chapter. We're not going to finish it. When I realized that Pastor Enoch wasn't coming, I decided, felt led, to bring us back to one more message from Hebrews 11, one more piece of it. What we have been seeing again and again is that ordinary people and ordinary churches can connect with our extraordinary God and do the impossible by faith. Our author has talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab, the whole Jewish nation. With verse 32, he begins wrapping up his argument about the importance of faith. Will you look at verse 32, Hebrews 11:32? It just gets better. He says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, there's our guy, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Now, our writer just mentions David because he assumes his Jewish readers knew all about him. We're going to park on David this morning because if we have what David had and we can have it, we also can kill some giants by faith. So we're going to leave Hebrews 11. We won't come back to it and go to 1 Samuel 17. Will you find 1 Samuel 17 in the Bibles belonging to our church? It's page 202. Page 202. If you have your own Bible and need some help, you start at the beginning with the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you go through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 17. Here's the back story. <clears throat> God had used the incubator of ancient Egypt to raise up his own chosen for a special mission people, the Jews. About 1450 B.C., they were ready to come out of the incubator. He used Moses as the leader to bring them out. Forty years later, their new leader, Joshua, leads them into a piece of land 
the center of the world in God's eyes, a land bridge between three continents, it still is, from which the Jewish people were supposed to be stationary missionaries. They were supposed to stay right there and attract the rest of the world which would come to them and come to know the one and only true and living God by coming to Israel. Unfortunately, 400 years of mostly chaos was the result after they got there. About 1050 B.C., God gave the Jewish people something they had been whining for for years, a king. Their king Saul had a good start and then quickly turned away from God. As we reach 1 Samuel 17, Saul is in terrible shape. He is demon-oppressed, maybe even demon-possessed. He looks and acts like a man who is seriously mentally ill. His lack of leadership has put his nation in an awful predicament. They're being bullied by a people who have moved into Palestine from the sea, the Philistines, which brings us to 1 Samuel 17. And we can't read every word of this great story this morning, but I'm going to kind of retell it and show you some verses here and there. It's a great story. So the Jews and the Philistines squared off once again. They are at opposite ends of a valley. One army at the north end, one army at the south end. They're ready for battle, but this one guy spoils it. His name is Goliath. You've heard of him. He is called in verse 4 a champion. Now, we think of a champion as somebody who wins a championship. But a champion in that day was really kind of a neat idea. I like it. A champion was one member of an army who would go one-on-one with a member of the opposing army. It would be war by proxy. Whoever won this one-on-one duel match won the battle. I mean, it was really great in terms of saving bloodshed. We ought to do that today. And I'd like to pick the champions. But anyway... Kind of a neat idea, but this guy, this was cheating. I mean, this guy was cheating. This guy was nine foot nine, three inches between the top of his head and the basket, you know. Um, he had bronze helmet on his head, bronze scale armor coat, bronze armor on his legs, carried a bronze javelin in the sunlight, of which they have a lot over there. He would have gleamed like a superhero. Really scary. The head of his spear weighed 16 pounds. And he comes out. He does this actually morning and evening for 40 days, over and over. And I'd like to try to say it like Goliath said it, but every time I try to speak anything like Goliath, I start talking, and that's really hard on your ears. So I, I, I can't do it. But if you look at verse 8, here's what he says. He says, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not the servants of Saul? Choose a man. Have him come down and fight me. And this is the, this is the kind of thing the champion does. And in verse 10, it's really important. He says, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man. Let's fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, it says, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Meanwhile, David was the youngest of eight sons from Bethlehem. His three oldest brothers had gone off and joined the army. They were there. David was going back and forth from being a shepherd on his dad's farm to being an armor bearer and court musician for King Saul. Back and forth, kind of like a college student. 
And his dad sends him with a care package for his three oldest brothers. And he gets there in the morning or the evening, just as this big jerk was going out there and issuing his twice-daily challenge. And he sees it, and he is absolutely transfixed at the sight of this guy and the things that he was saying. And what must have really blown his mind was that he got there, David got at the front, right as the army was going forth to war. And it says in verse 20, they went out there shouting the war cry. Whatever the war cry was, they were shouting it. It's a pathetic scene. They go out there shouting the war cry. Goliath came out, did his usual thing. In fact, it calls it, verse 23, his usual defiance. And when the Israelites saw the man, they ran from him in fear. Nobody wanted to be mistaken for the volunteer, you know, like in all the movies, the volunteer who's supposed to step forward to volunteer and everybody else steps back, you know, happens to Laurel and Hardy and all kinds of people. Nobody wants to be mistaken for that guy, so they just ran. <laughs> no, make no mistake about it. David was just disgusted. He was disgusted, and he started asking people, so what's the reward for killing this guy? But he was really so excited about the implications of it that when they told him, he didn't even really hear them. David's oldest brother, Eliab, is beginning to realize that, that David wants to do this thing. He wants to go fight him, and he accuses him of being conceited and tells him he has a wicked heart. And uh, David defends his innocence. They realize he's serious. They bring him before King Saul. He comes before Saul, and he tells Saul, if you look at verse 34... He says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. And he says in 36, your servant has killed the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. Saul realizes he's not going to be able to stop the guy, so he lets him go. God bless you, buddy. (laughs) And then they put Saul's armor on David. And at this point, I have to destroy a myth. The myth is that David was just a little guy, only a boy named David, only a little lad, as the song says. I don't think he was a little guy. If he had been a little guy, there's no way that they would have put Saul's armor on him. That would have been a joke. Saul was a head taller than anybody when they made him king. So my theory is that David was probably tall, skinny, not filled out, He looked like a 15-year-old high school basketball player. Okay, get the picture? So they put Saul's armor on him because it it fit reasonably well. And he says, he tries to walk around all this big heavy stuff. He's never fought like this before. This isn't his thing. He says it's in the middle of verse 39. I can't go in these. So he takes the stuff that God has made him good at. He takes his staff in his hand chooses five smooth stones from the brook, puts them in his pouch, and off he goes. The Philistine sees sees him coming and sees he's a handsome, red-haired boy, and he's just absolutely humiliated. He's insulted. You send a boy to fight me? This is an insult. And it says, and this was a mistake. This was his first mistake, verse 43. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
And then David gets eloquent, and you've got to hear some of this. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. The Philistine came closer. David ran to meet him. He took one stone, just one nice stone, put it in his sling. It would have been one like this. It wasn't the, you know, this kind of sling. It's the same kind that you see on the news. Palestinian boys are still using these things. And uh, now they're hitting Israeli soldiers with them. And I do have a rock in here, but I taped it in because it would just not be cool at all if I hit one of you. So David throws one stone, hits him right in the middle of the forehead, and kills him instantly. And this is very possible. David was very good at it. The Philistine drops dead. David comes up, takes Goliath's own sword, cuts his head off. Now for us, this is really gross. This is really disgusting. But in that day, that was their proof that they had actually killed the guy. Couldn't take his dog tags. They weren't invented yet. They took his head. So meanwhile, the army saw what had happened. The Israeli army was filled with faith and they chased after the Philistines and won a huge victory that day. That's the real David and Goliath story. Great story, isn't it? But it doesn't end there. If we have what David had, this is what I came here to say today, and we can have it, we can also kill some giants by faith. What did David have? First of all, he had zeal for the best possible cause. He had zeal for the best possible cause. Zeal, what is it? I looked it up in a dictionary. It said, enthusiastic devotion, ardor, especially for a cause, comes from a root word which means to boil. I didn't know what ardor meant, so I looked up ardor, A-R-D-O-R, and it said, warmth or intensity of passion or affection, eagerness, vehemence, great heat, comes from a root word which means to burn. So zeal is boiling and burning for something. In our culture, zeal for anything religious is way out of style. Have you noticed? It's okay to be zealous in our culture, to burn and boil. I'm going to be frank here, excuse me. It's okay to burn and boil for sex, for music, for money, for your favorite singers, your favorite musicians, your favorite actors. It's okay to scream your head off like a complete idiot for your favorite sports team and dress up all wacko. It's okay to be a very, very zealous rock musician. I watch these guys, they jump all over the stage like monkeys. Have you noticed? And I just, I gotta admire these guys who can be playing a lead guitar solo and they run across the stage and they fall to one knee and they slide across the stage on the one knee and they don't even miss a note? I think I could do that. Now, probably not. 
But zeal for a cause is out, especially a religious cause, way out, way out. But zeal is still in with God. Look at Romans 12, 11. It's on the screens. And this was not written to missionaries or warriors. This was written to normal church members. And look at what it says. Never be lacking in zeal. And just in case we don't know what he means, he says, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Why did he say serving the Lord? Because when we lose our zeal, when we lose our spiritual fervor, we quit serving the Lord. I've been hurt. I quit. But God wants us all zealous all the time. David had zeal for the best possible cause, which was not Israelis versus Philistines. It was the glory of God. David burned and boiled for the glory of God. That's what Israel was there for, letting the whole world know about the glory of God. If you come back with me for a moment, way back, way back, way, way, way back in the beginning, we have God, and only God, and He was glorious. He was gloriously loving, gloriously powerful, gloriously wise, gloriously merciful, gloriously just, gloriously holy, gloriously beautiful, gloriously creative. All glory was all his. And then he started making things. And when he did that, he demonstrated his glory. He displayed his glory in all that he made from snowflakes to snow leopards. And then some of the things he made, people, angels, started rebelling against him. Though they all bore witness to his glory in some way, they had derived glory, they forgot where it came from, leaving the universe in terrible shape, terrible shape. The Jewish people were created, placed where they were placed, to teach the world again about the glory of God. What made David so mad, and he was mad, was that God's glory was being denied his authority being defied. His name, his reputation was being attacked ever so boldly by Goliath. J.I. Packard in his great book, Knowing God, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said something like this, because God is jealous for his name, we, his followers, should be zealous for his name. Because God is jealous for his name, we should be zealous for his name. We should desire like David that the whole world gets it straight. Well, you look back at verse 26. 26, I want to show you just a few highlights. David asked the man standing near him, the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Look at 36. Find 36. He's talking to Saul now and he says, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Look at 
46. 46. He says, This day, he's talking to Goliath now, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. For David, this was not about Israeli pride or patriotism. It wasn't about wealth. It wasn't about marrying the king's daughter. It wasn't about getting freed from paying taxes. This was not some young knight trying to win the princess. This was, you might say, evangelism. Because he's doing it for the glory of God. And people, I'm saying to you, make your life about something big. Something really, really big. Big enough to live for. Big enough to die for. The glory of God. I'm not suggesting you should do what I do. There are many ways to live for the glory of God. I do what I do because sick churches are a disgrace to God. Aren't they? They're a disgrace. They disgrace God's name. Healthy churches glorify God. They reflect a bit of His glory. They enhance His reputation. Healthy churches do other good things like winning people to Jesus. But the best thing they do is glorify God. Want to kill some giants? Anybody want to kill some giants? Get what David had. David had zeal for the best possible cause. Besides that, David also had faith of the best possible kind. David had faith of the best possible kind. Now, unlike religious zeal, faith is something which is well spoken of in our culture today. Everybody's talking about faith. I hear it all the time. But when most people in our world today, in America, talk about faith, they're talking about faith in ourselves, faith in our own abilities, faith in some nebulous, nice future. It's kind of a groundless optimism that makes you a positive person. And of course we'd all rather live next door for a person who is optimistic and full of even this kind of faith than a person who's pessimistic and grumpy, right? But, however, in the Bible, faith is faith in God. The belief that God is reliable, that what God says is true, His promises can be counted on, They should be counted on. In the Bible, faith means God says it, and that settles it. In the the Bible, faith means that when God says jump, we ask Him, how high would you like me to jump, God? And then we do it. David didn't believe in a a God of old stories that just took place in in the Holy Land, some far-off place. David believed in a God who is right here, right now, just as powerful as he was when he made the world. He believed in a God who cares about his name, cares about his glory, and will show up and strengthen the person who has faith in him. I want to show you David's faith deduction. You've heard me talk about deductions before, some of you. Here's a great one. This is David's faith deduction on the screens. Premise number one that David believed. God wants to be glorified. It's not selfish of God to want to be glorified. It's just right. It's right for the whole universe that God gets glorified. 
Premise number two, David believed. God is glorified when his people fight and win through his miraculous help. With me so far? God is disgraced when his people lose without his miraculous help. Deduction. If I go fight Goliath and give God the glory, God will enable me to whoop him. Southern word. Whoop him. Good deduction. Very good deduction. Gabby Douglas, our wonderful little Olympic gymnast, said almost the same thing. She was asked about her incredible success in the Olympics, and she said, you know, thank you, God. As the glory goes up, the blessings come down. Did anybody else hear that? I about jumped off my couch. As the glory goes up, the blessings come down. David made himself a champion for God. The same way Goliath had made himself a champion for his paganism when he cursed David by his gods. David put his life on the line. He took God at his word. He painted God into a corner. I mean, it would have looked really bad for God that day if David had been beheaded by Goliath. You see David's faith all over the chapter. It's in verse 30. I'll just show you two verses. 37, verse 37. He says, the Lord, and that's not some generic God. That's the God of Israel, the real one, Yahweh. Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Verse 47. Again, he's speaking to Goliath here. And he says, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David had faith of the best possible kind. Now, I would be irresponsible if I didn't add this truth. David's faith was of the best possible kind because while it was grounded in the miraculous power of God, It was also connected to reality. I mean, it was connected to his gifts and his experiences. He was highly skilled with the sling. And he had already had the experience of killing a lion and killing a bear with that sling. So I am not saying, if you dream it, you can do it. Whatever your mind can conceive, your hands can achieve. That's humanism. That's not Bible. That's not David. But if God gives you the dream, and the dream is connected to wide awake realities, then you can do it. Oh, yes, you can. Want to kill some giants? Get what David had. He had zeal for the best possible cause. He had faith of the best possible kind. Third, this will be short, but David had influence of the highest possible order. David had influence of the highest possible order. The simplest definition of leadership is influence. Leadership is influence. David influenced the whole Jewish nation. On that day, when a great victory was won, for generations to come, And since that day, millions have stoked their faith into flame at the hearth of David's passion, including me. Love the guy. Now, in our world, back to our culture, 
People talk about leadership as if it is a morally good thing, maybe even a, uh, a moral absolute, an absolutely good thing. But leadership in and of itself is a skill, it's an ability which is morally neutral. It's good when we use it for good. In other words, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and others were great leaders and terrible men. With me? David's leadership was of the highest possible order because he inspired millions to live and die for the glory of God, which is the best possible cause. Want to kill some giants? Get what David had. David had zeal for the best possible cause. He had faith of the best possible kind. He had influence of the highest possible order. And finally, he had power from the best possible source. David had power from the best possible source. And I say this with embarrassment. I taught this chapter, 1 Samuel 17, for more than 30 years before I saw this. I'd always admired David. I always wanted to have his zeal for the best possible cause and his faith of the best possible kind and his influence of the highest possible order. But I thought, where do you get it? Where do you get it? David can be inspiring, and for other people, he can be kind of intimidating. Yes? Know what I mean? Here's some really good news. Will you turn back a page to 1 Samuel 16? Go back to 1 Samuel 16 and look at verse 12. The prophet Samuel has been told to go to the home of Jesse in Bethlehem and anoint the next Jewish king. That means pour oil on him, olive oil, out of a ram's horn, about yea big, symbolic thing. And you, many of you know the story. He looks at seven older sons. They don't even consider David because he's the youngest. He's out in the fields tending the flock and they bring him in. And God says, this is the guy. This is the guy. Look at verse 12. It says, so he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy, means he had red hair, a fine appearance, handsome features. And then the Lord said in Samuel's ear, rise and anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Now in the Old Testament, from what I can see, anointing was done for three different kinds of people. It was done for kings. It was done for prophets, and it was done for priests. In every case, when it was done, it meant oil poured out on somebody's head, and the symbolism was always the same thing. It wasn't magic. It was symbolic. It was a prayer put into action. And the the request from God was always the same. God, this guy really needs your help. He needs you to pour something out on him. If it's a king, he needs wisdom. If it's a priest, he needs holiness. If it's a prophet, he needs information from God. So we're saying, God, pour it on. And in the New Testament, we see people being anointed because they are sick. And we're saying, God, this person needs your help. Will you please pour it on? So that was the prayer. And look at what happened. Middle of verse 13. And from that day on, 
The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then if you slide down to verse 18, Saul, King Saul and his servants are talking about this young guy, David. And one of Saul's servants says of him, it's in the middle of verse 18, he's a brave man and a warrior. That was an exaggeration. They just heard about the bear and the lion thing, decided he was a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. David didn't come up with all this zeal and faith and influence on his own. He didn't squeeze it out of his flesh. He got it from the Spirit of God. He got it from the Holy Spirit, the same one who makes lost sinners into Christians and then stays there in us forever and ever and ever. Now, we're not all going to be tall, red-haired, and handsome like David. We're not all going to be skillful with a sling and singer-songwriters at the same time. But through the Holy Spirit, by means of his anointing, we can have the zeal of David, we can have the faith of David, we can have the influence of David. We can. We can give ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We can allow Him to control us. We can allow Him to fill us up with the book that He wrote. If we have what David had, we can kill some giants. Look at the slides. Look at the screens for just a moment. Some of the things we can do. We can slay gigantic problems. We can go through horrendous things with the help of God and glorify Him in the process. You know that's true, many of you. We can defeat the devil himself and overcome our own sinful tendencies. That's a big victory right there. Just to not do the thing we're being tempted to do. We can do ministry, work that counts for eternity. We can cooperate with God in bringing sinners to Jesus. We can have a huge influence on others for good. We can influence people in our churches in our families, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, in our community, and we can become vibrant, powerful, effective, God-glorifying churches. Churches don't have to be sick. They don't have to be divided. They don't have to be ineffective any more than the Jewish army had to lose to the Philistines. Churches can be effective tools for God's glory because the God of David is alive and well in Three Lakes and Eagle River and Sugar Camp and Hiles and Starks and Monaco and even in Crandon they tell me and in Chicago and a lot of other places let's kill some giants by faith I'll just say amen myself will you pray with me amen Father we are so Glad that we have abundant reasons to believe that you, the God of David, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, are alive and well on planet Earth. Father, by means of your wonderful Holy Spirit, make us like David. Make us giant killers who give you glory. And God's people said, Amen. Will you-